I would pitch like crazy. I got rejected a million times, but I was the guy who, when they would say, that's not good, we're gonna pass on it. I was the guy who would stay and go, okay, I get it. What do you think I could do better? Listening to Inside Acting, a podcast dedicated to demystifying the inner and outer game of success in the entertainment industry. I'm AJ Meyer. And I'm Trevor Algod. And coming up today in episode 303, we have part two of Jasmine and AJ's conversation with writer, director, and animator Jorge R. Gutierrez. Part two today is all about how Jorge got his film, The Book of Life, made. From making the tough choice to leave a huge multi-million dollar deal at DreamWorks, to his very tangential contribution to the musical Hamilton, to the most harrowing pitch story you've ever heard. These are the challenges and lessons to getting almost anything made in Hollywood, especially if you want that thing to stay true to your original vision. It's in episode 303, coming up right now. Stay with us. Support for this episode of Inside Acting is brought to you in part by Rehearsal Pro, the current version of Rehearsal, the essential app for actors. It's available now on the iTunes App Store, so if you want to learn your lines, be off book for your audition, explore your character, make stronger choices, and do a whole lot more, go to rehearsal.pro slash IAP right now to learn about all the cool new features in this newest version of Rehearsal, the groundbreaking app designed by actors for actors. That's rehearsal.pro slash IAP. Good morning, brother. How you doing? Good morning. Hello, sir. My life is great. I feel like our, our country is once again hemorrhaging and I couldn't figure out a way to, I mean, not that we should or shouldn't, but I, I didn't want to not address you know what's going on right now because it just feels i don't know it feels too big you know it feels like one of those things that like if we didn't talk about it it would be stranger than if we did that makes sense you're speaking specifically about the school shootings in yeah Florida. yeah as of as of this recording that just happened uh maybe a week ago yeah i mean it was after the the, the recording of our last episode you know every time it, it's not just the event itself but every time this happens and it's crazy to me that i have to say those words every time this happens it shouldn't be a thing that we have to say but um i feel like every time this happens there's this crazy upheaval of emotion and vitriol and um I, I would call it dialogue, but it's not really dialogue. It's just people like, you know, screaming at each other via social media and um, and media media. I, I, I was in a lot of pain um, this week as a result of it. And um, like I said, I just didn't it didn't feel right to just kind of breeze on by. I wanted to sort of like stop and acknowledge a that it happened and and maybe B, we can talk about, like, I don't know, how it affects, you know, artists who are sort of also advocates and um, or activists, uh, I should say. And then and then sensitive to, you know, the sort of energetic and emotional um, vibrations of of other humans. Does that make sense? This has happened so many times uh, over the course of us recording this podcast, and I feel like every time it happens, we come around to the idea that we have this responsibility as artists to do something about it, but do something in that um, transmutational way, as it were, uh, of uh, of artistry. And, you know, I, I don't know, man. I... <sighs> You know, we always talk about this, how we have more work to do, and it, it just does get exhausting after a while, and I don't necessarily know what the uh, what the solution is, but I'm, I'm, in, I'm curious and intrigued by what you just said there about the sort of vibrational level. Can you talk more about that? 
Well, I just, I mean, I, I, I feel like, you know, uh, there's this, um, new recent sort of recently formed idea about, you know, like, um, uh, HSPs, like highly sensitive or hypersensitive persons. Um, there's like a Ted talk on it. There was a book that was written about it. And, um, I don't think I'm, I'm not equating being an artist with being an HSP. I'm just saying that like, I have plenty of people in my life. I feel like I'm surrounded by people who are, um, somewhere on the, the spectrum of an HSP and, I'm also surrounded by artists, obviously. And I feel like artists especially are sensitive to, you know, what's kind of going on in the world, regardless of whether or not it's happening directly to them. And, and so that, that's kind of my point is, is not only, you know, was it painful as I said, but like you said, Trevor, I, I, I feel sort of helpless to, to do anything about it. I get, it feels so empty to just like retweet something or post something on, on social media. You know, I, I know not to make light of the situation, but it, it always reminds me of that sketch that they did on, on SNL where they were like singing, thank you, Scott, you, you read something on the internet and then posted it on the internet. Like that's the whole, like you, the whole joke of the song is you saved the world by, you know, posting something on social media. Thank you. Um, you know, this sort of sarcastic thing. I just feel kind of powerless sometimes. There's just, there just seems to be this, um, unstoppable force of money and greed and politics and misinformation and, and people who are, are just very, very committed to being right about a lot of things, um, including guns and, you know, their rights to them. So anyway, I, you know, I know it's not a political podcast, but it's also a podcast about being human. And I don't know, for me, it's been it's been a challenging weak to kind of grapple with the messiness that is being human. Mm. Yeah. The, the armchair activism that you just sort of spoke into there about people, uh, you know, just posting on social media about it and getting outraged and then going back to their lives and, uh, you know, feeling justified in being angry and upset, um, but not really changing any behaviors or taking any sort of additional physical action is something that I, I think we can all agree is is a, a sort of a tired um, thing in our in our world. I mean, there is something to be said for awareness. Absolutely, spreading awareness, uh, standing up and using your voice to speak for a cause is is huge. But that's like the easiest. Um, path of least resistance. <laughs> it's the easiest version of that. Yeah. I, I'm curious, AJ, if time and money and all other circumstances in your life were not an object, what are two things that you would go do right now to um, alleviate situations like this in the world? I'm putting you on the spot big time. I apologize in yeah, advance, Jesus. but what, like, I, I guess I'm just thinking... I mean, it's one thing to be upset about it, and I, I'm 100% there with you. It, it breaks my heart, and I have to actively sort of keep myself moving and, and keep my mind off of these things. Uh, but, uh, you know, if, if, you know, feeding myself, housing myself, clothing myself, showing up for a job, all those things weren't an issue, there are a lot of things I know I would be interested in going to do. Maybe what are one or two things that you would go do right now if none of that uh, were an issue? Um, well, I might, I might make a film, you know, that, that's, uh, I, I, I say that because I think that it's part of our job as artists to respond with our art. So, you know, you and I worked on plays that focused on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, for years. Um, and that was sort of our artistic response to, to what was going on in, in the world. So, you know, I might, I might make a film like that seems like something that would be a 
combination of passion and artistry and activism. But also, I, I feel like I would get involved on, you know, at, at the grassroots level, like find where the, you know, advocacy groups um, for, you know, common sense gun laws and stuff uh, operate and maybe, you know, meet up with them in, in D.C. and and uh, sort of dive in full time there. I mean, you're saying that, you know, money and time and all that are, are no object. I, I would be, you know, there are there are certain things that I'm passionate enough that I would make them a full time thing, at least for a while you know, whether it be a month or a year or, or something, I don't know, but. And based on the information that you have right now, what end goal would you be pursuing? What needs to happen for this kind of thing to not uh, continue to occur? Uh, well, there's so much. It's not. I'm asking you huge questions. I know. I, I apologize. In, 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 a, in the few minutes we have to, there's no one thing, first of all. Um, it's not just about guns. It's not just about gun laws. There's a lot. There's a lot of healing that this country needs to do around race and sexism. And and there's a lot of uh, work that needs to be done in terms of, um, yes, mental health, but 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 more than that, acknowledging that we like we have a problem with uh, specifically men like 98 percent of these mass shootings are, are carried out by by men. I can't remember, uh, you know, a time when a, a woman was involved. Maybe the shooting in San Diego, where there was a woman involved. There, there are so many different strings to the spider web that, you know, the the gun laws alone are, it, it's 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 just one part of it. But we have plenty of examples, you know, plenty of examples. Like, you know, Jasmine's Australian, and I know so many people have probably seen this, you know. Uh, viral video or meme or whatever about, you know, what happened there, but they had one shooting, one mass shooting, and they basically outlawed guns and haven't had one since. I mean, it's just like, <sighs> yeah, but do you think that would actually fly in the United States? No, no. And it, no, it wouldn't. And that's the, that's the problem. And that's what I mean about like, you know, the, the work that we, that we have to do. No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. Um, and that's that's um, that's really disheartening. You know, it's not a um, like it's not to me, that's not a, a light thing to acknowledge that. No, it probably won't. And that's not a, that's just that's crazy to me. It's the only country in the world where this happens. The only one. The only one we have tens of thousands of and never mind like mass okay now i'm getting on my soapbox a little bit but you started it never mind um mass shootings gun deaths period gun deaths like people who like shoot themselves you know commit suicide with a pistol like we have more gun deaths than any other country on the planet so it's not just these mass shootings. It's like it's an issue that we have with guns, period, like across the entire society because there's so much money involved and so much of this weird obsession with them. The answer is no. No, it's not. It's not. It's probably not going to happen, at least in my lifetime. I don't I don't I don't know that I see it happening. I mean, my hope is that this generation of uh, these high school students who are already gathering and advocating and um, talking about a walkout on uh, April 20th, the anniversary of Columbine, like there, I can actually see that causing a major shift. But we've been dealing with it for so long that, you know, it makes me feel like, no, it's not going to happen here. <laughs> Um, and that's crazy to me. It's just, I, I don't, I don't understand how we keep letting this happen. Hmm. Yeah. There are deep cultural and psychological and identity 
issues at play here. Um, you know, this this is the country where this happens the most frequently, and they are the deadliest shootings uh, in the world. But this is also the country with the most bounty and the most control in the world and the most freedom, well, arguably the most freedom of speech. I don't know, spindles, whatever, strands of the spider web. Uh, that that are uh, you know sort of working together, and you can't pluck one without plucking them all. Um, I don't know what it looks like moving forward, but I I asked you, I put you on the spot with those questions because I want, um, I hope our listeners are also sufficiently sort of fed up and fed up to the point where uh, it's just not enough anymore to post about it on social media, to have conversations around the dinner table with people about it that it is sufficient enough for people who want to take on this issue, take on this fight, and do something more with it. Um, It's so common these days for an issue like this to get people riled up for a week or two, and then we just sort of settle back into the new normal, the wash of white noise uh, with the news, the next big scandal, or whatever it is. And it's very easy to lose sight of the fact that this is something that happens all the time. And so if this is something that, you know, you're listening to and you're thinking, God, you know, I'm fed up. I am really fed up. I'm actually going to write down a goal, an end result that I want to affect in the world around this. And here are two or three solutions that I'm going to start working on right now to make this happen. And I'm going to see them through all the way to the end, no matter what new news piece or or think piece comes out on the news next week or next month to uh, take us all in a new direction of fear and anger and whatnot. So uh, I, again, I I sort of apologize for putting you on on the spot, but I also don't because I want it to ignite a conversation, uh, at least internally among everybody listening to really just take note of what you're feeling right now and what you're experiencing around this. And if it's something that is not uh, activating you, that's okay. But I think we can all agree that it's not okay when there is a senseless loss of life. And uh, with that as our baseline, we can move forward and and really pick and choose what we want to stand for. And as artists, I think this is built in. This is a a built-in sensibility that uh, injustice, harm, death... Uh, abuse, neg- negligence, violence, this stuff is not uh, not okay. And that's sort of what we're, we're working towards. So again, if you are listening to this and you feel sufficiently moved, I urge you to put pen to paper and, and, and start to put some plans in place. What can you do beyond tweeting, beyond Facebook posting, beyond Instagram rants? Uh, what can you do to make a big difference? What can you physically go out into the world and do? Who can you call? Where can you show up? What meetings can you attend? What lobby, uh, lobbying activities can you be involved with to affect a, a tangible end result in the world? Uh, thank you for articulating my point better than I ever could. <laughs> Anything else before we jump into this interview? No, man. I am all talked out. (laughs) All right. So here we go. Part two of Jasmine and AJ's chat with uh, writer, director, and animator Jorge Gutierrez. If this is anything like part one, we are all in for a treat. Enjoy, guys. We'll see you on the other side. studio that you uh mixopolis mixopolis is our little independent animation studio and it's basically sandra and myself Mm -hmm. and so wherever we are that's that's the company got it and and so did when you started work with these jobs for these bigger jobs for like nickelodeon uh with el tigre and stuff was that your did they hire you or did they hire your animation studio they would hire me and then i would say i have a little studio uh, we can hire the studio to do your pilot. And so it was always sort of me and the studio were connected. Got it. Uh, and the studios don't care, right? They're like, yeah. we don't want to know. Just 
Where, just where, do, where do we send the check? Yeah. <clears throat> right. Uh, yeah. And for me, it was making the little student short open the door, selling that little internet cartoon at Sony made all the other studios go, oh, if Sony trusted you to do this, yeah. now that we're TV channels, you're less, less of a risk. Because at the end of the day, everybody's looking to minimize the risk, right? They want to find out if you're a crazy person or how risky it is to work for you, right? right? Those are the two things. Yeah. And so thanks to having a show at Sony, all the TV places, Disney, Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, basically called us up and said, hey, would you guys be interested in pitching a TV show? And that's what we did. I would pitch like crazy. I got rejected a million times. But I was the guy who, when they would say, that's not good, we're going to pass on it. I was the guy who would stay and go, okay, I get it. What do you think I could do better to become better at pitching? What do you think I would, I could do? Not on this thing I just pitched you, but just as a person who pitches. What could I do better? I know you hear pitches all day, and you must be tired of them. Mm-hmm. What can I do to make it better? And sure enough, we became friends with a lot of the people in development because they're, you know, they want they want to hear good stuff and they want to make good stuff because they, the way it works usually is you pitch something, they have to pitch it to someone above them. Yeah. And that person has to pitch it to someone above them. And eventually it keeps going up. And so internally, whoever hears the first one is going to get the credit for it. Hmm. So you want to help them and, and you want to help yourself. So it, it became very interesting to sort of learn the inside of, of how development works. And eventually we got uh, Disney option one of the ideas. And as it goes, the best way to get a job is to have a job. So as soon as Disney <laughs> uh, had a pilot with us, everybody else said, well, well now we really need a pilot. Mm-hmm. And so we, at some point we had a pilot at Disney, one at Cartoon Network, and one at Nickelodeon. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and then they would, you know, you work your ass off on these things. They don't pay very well because the, the carrot they hold above you is that it could turn into a series. And, yeah. And so we we have, we had to work full time jobs, and then you do your pilots at night and on the weekends. So it's wow. kind of, but that's how they that's how they test you yeah. to see how much you're into it. Huh. Uh, so eventually, uh, Nickelodeon was the place that uh, sort of gave us the biggest opening. Uh, as far as creativity back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how we got LT Greg Green into series. Wow. <laughs> one awesome story after yeah. another. Um, Jorge, one of my favorite stories that I heard you tell at the uh, artist dinner was a story about pitching. And it was the the journey that was getting the book of life to the big screen. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was the, the highlight for me uh, was, was just hearing the, the lengths to which you went um, to make that happen. So I would love to, AJ hasn't heard the story. So I would, okay. yeah. Well, I've heard it, re- I've heard it retold. Heard, he's heard it retold. A couple I'm, of, I'm nowhere near as good at it as you. So. Yeah. A couple of these stories, <laughs> I guess you told uh, <laughs> at the event and, and, uh, as soon as Jasmine told me, you know, even the Cliff's Notes version, I was like, oh, we got to have this guy on the show. <laughs> okay, well, here it is. And, and, <laughs> and by the way, when I tell it, I get to relive it. Yes. And, and I, I get shaken and I'm sweating. <laughs> like, that's so I, nice. that, that was that was what I, I saw. And I just, I knew you're, you're a storyteller, first and foremost. It just, you lived the story of the whole thing. And I felt every bit of it with you, so... <laughs> Okay, so here we go. So Book of Life, LP is doing uh, pretty well, you know, it, it, very well-received show. So Book of Life first was at DreamWorks, DreamWorks Animation. And I can now tell the story because everybody who was there has now left. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was in development on Book of Life there for a year. So I would work on LP Grade during the day and at DreamWorks in the evenings and at night. Um, and at some point... Uh, a movie came out over there that didn't do well, so they changed development. Because the other thing that happens, the horrible things that happens, is every time something doesn't do well, they change development, hmm. as if that was the reason the thing didn't do well. Hmm. And projects become orphans. 
because uh, the previous regime brought it in. Mm-hmm. So uh, Book of Life at that point, I get brought into a room and they say, okay, Jorge, in order for Book of Life to move forward, we have some changes. Uh, this is in 2008, right? And they say, number one, can't take place in Mexico. Number two, no bullfighting. What? And number three, the main character can't die. Yeah. Oh. So in my head, I'm like, wait a second. My movie's about a bullfighter in Mexico who dies. Yeah. That's, uh, that's it. So don't make the movie, basically, is what you're saying. Well, and, and then they would say things like, in order for your 160 million dollar movie to move forward mm-hmm. this is what needs to change uh now again this is 2008 mm-hmm. or 2007 they go so in order for your movie to move forward we want it to take place in new york present day urban <laughs> and we want it to be a hip-hop salsa <laughs> reggaeton musical what what yeah so I remember thinking, like, wait a second, what? Okay, here's where the story gets even crazier. And they go, we just signed the guy that you're going to love. His name is Lin-Manuel Miranda. What? I just said it sounds like In the Heights. Yeah, in the Heights, yeah. This yeah. was In the Heights. In the Heights. This is in the Heights, but anime. Into this the was Mexican pre- Heights. Yeah, well, this was pre-Broadway In the Heights. Wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so they had found them. He had signed. And so I would like to believe that thanks to me quitting, Lynn concentrated and got to do Hamilton. So I feel like I saved Hamilton. Yeah. Okay. We'll remind him. We'll, yeah. Yeah. When, yeah. When, we'll have him on the show someday. And I'll be like, You're hey. Welcome, Lynn. Yeah. Remember and him. I, I got to have breakfast with him, and I couldn't tell him that story. I was I was too uh, no. too starstruck. But anyway, so I I basically quit. I, I took the I took the movie with me, um, and so in the little studio at that point, you know, my wife is pregnant. Uh, they canceled El Tigre at Nickelodeon. I just quit my job as a as a director, and I remember feeling feeling like okay. This is this is gonna make me, you know, if whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, I'm gonna be bulletproof after this. A little studio out of nowhere approaches me in Texas and they go, Well, we don't have $160 million, but we have twenty-five. And we will spend those twenty-five if you can figure out how to get us another twenty-five and find an investor. But you have to move to Dallas, Texas, which I've never been to at that point in my life. And uh, we will let you do the movie exactly how you want to make it. Hmm. So I talked to all my friends. Everybody says, this is a terrible idea. Don't do it. I talked to my manager. This is a terrible idea. Don't do it. So that's exactly what we did. (laughs) What what made you decide to do it, given everyone else saying don't do it? I think at that point, I had worked in... I had worked in big studios, so the allure of that was gone. The the prestige of having worked at any place didn't mean anything anymore. Mm-hmm. To me, it was more about what do I get to make? And the version of the movie that would happen at DreamWorks would be a horrible movie. And even back then, I knew if I make something horrible and people love it, I'm screwed. Because mm-hmm. that's what people are going to want me to do for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather take my chances go to this tiny little studio, worst thing that can happen is we don't make the movie and we come back. Mm-hmm. And if that's the worst thing that can happen, that's not that bad. Then you're back where you started. Where we started, and, and I will live knowing I gave it a shot. Yeah. yeah. No regrets. So yeah. my wife, being very understanding, said, I hate Texas. I want nothing to do with that, but I love you, and I will do it for you. So... We moved. Our kid was two years old. We worked there for a year. They let me write the script. Uh, I worked with my head writer, Doug Langdale from LP Gray. Uh, they let me hire Sandra to help me with designs. They let me hire an art director and a production designer, Simon Varela and uh, Paul Sullivan. First time art director, first time production designer. We were all first timers, right? I'm a first time director. I thought everybody from LP Gray would come with us. No one came. Huh. <laughs> So we had to start from zero. Mm. Uh, but that's when the good stuff happens, right? When you have to start from zero. Sure. We work on the stuff for a year, and they say, okay, 
now that you have a script, now that you have a bunch of art and you have a bunch of sort of visual representations of what the movie is going to be like, now we need a big name producer to help us get the other $25 million. Who would be your dream producer? Well, like all fat Mexican directors, <laughs> we have one god, and he is Guillermo del Toro. Yes. <clears throat> right? So I, I said, Guillermo del Toro, he has to be the producer of this. And everybody warned me and said, he gets so many movies pitched to him, it's going to be really tough. Uh, he had just come back from New Zealand from The Hobbit not working out. And he was the sexiest, you know, director in Hollywood at that point. He was getting offered Star Wars and any movie you can imagine he got offered. Wow. So getting a meeting with him proved to be almost impossible. He rejected me 15 times. I mean, we're buddies now, so he, he'll, he admits that he was perhaps a little harsh on me. And there were meetings where I would, I would show up and I would see him get in his car and drive off. Like, that's how... Hard. Wait, meetings where he was supposed to meet with you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like all the producers were there, the pitch was ready, and I would get there, and then I would see him like literally talk to someone, get in his car, and drive all the way. And you were on time. And I was on time. <laughs> okay. Or right. he would just, or I would show up, and he'd never show up. Or I would show up, and then they'd say, oh, you know what happened? He, you know, they would make up crazy excuses. So after 15 of those, the producer said, we have to move on. This is not working. We're wasting time. And I said, please, 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 one last one. All I want is for him to say no to my face mm-hmm. so that I can have that story that I got to pitch to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so finally, and this is coming from him, he says, he finally was like, okay, fine. Bring him to my house so I can say no to him to his face. Jeez. And he will stop bothering me. Right? So we go to his house. And this is back when he lived in L.A., so he had two houses, one house where he lived with his wife and two daughters, and then the other house, which is his crazy movie collection house that has incredible paintings and art from, you know, not only his movies, but the history of cinema, and he's a huge animation fan, so he has original Sleeping Beauty art, Mm. you know, just incredible. It's a museum in there. Wow. So we go over there, and he opens the door, and he's he's not very nice to me. (laughs) I've never been, you know, I've only known the, the Santa Claus version of him, you know, the, the one from the interviews and the mm. DVD commentaries. So I was kind of shocked. Uh, uh, and, you know, he gets so many movies pitched that I was just another another dumb guy trying to impress him. Mm. And so we go inside his house and they told me he's going to give you 20 minutes to pitch the movie. And so as we're looking around, this is August in L.A., it's really hot. Made the horrible decision to pitch outside of his house in the pool area because there was so much artwork inside and there was no room. So we go outside, we set up all the art, we set up all the sculptures. He comes out and he's a big guy. I'm a big. Immediately, we were both sweating. And he's really uncomfortable. Uh, And I could tell. I could tell he was really, really not into it. So I take the most important breath of my life at that moment. You know, I I conjure my ancestors. Ancestors, give me the strength. This is it. (laughs) And before I open my mouth, uh, at this point, he he calls me gordo, which means fat, fat guy. It's a term of endearment in Mexico. And he goes, gordo, five minutes. Oh, my God. Oh, God. I've been practicing this pitch, this 20-minute pitch, literally for months. And he just cut it down to five minutes. Five minutes. So at that point, I'm like, okay, I can do this. I can totally do this. Again, I take the most important breath of my life. Ancestors, give me the strength. And I kid you not, my people betrayed me. And the mansion next door had five gardeners with leaf blowers no, <laughs> and no. it was all, and it was almost like they were waiting for me and they were like look he's about to say it go <laughs> and like a wave of leaf blower sound hits us like <laughs> so I yell at Guillermo Guillermo can we wait until they finish <laughs> and he like stared at me with his beautiful blue eyes and he goes, Gordo, 
Four minutes. <laughs> oh, God. So the I'm worst, sweating. Yeah, the worst version of book life you've ever heard. Yelled over five leaf blowers. <laughs> and, you know, it's a really tender movie. So imagine me yelling, and then Ronaldo gets down on one knee and apologizes to the ball. So Guillermo's laughing at me. He's not even laughing at the story. I remember one of the producers was so embarrassed, he just laughed. He was oh, like, God. I'll see you guys back in the studio. Oh. Disaster. Worst pitch of all time. We're done. Everybody looks super depressed, including me. Guillermo's giving me this look like, oh, my God, that was awful. We go into his house. So it's just me and him. And we sit down. And he goes, you know, Gordo, that was, that was pretty bad. <laughs> and I'm like, Guillermo, I'm so sorry. I just want to shake his hand and get out of there and say I got to meet him. And so I tell him, you know, this is my hero. I'm looking for a little a little olive of hope. Mm-hmm. So um, I go, Guillermo, I'm sorry. That was a pretty that was a pretty shitty pitch. And he goes, shitty? That was by far the shittiest pitch I've ever seen in my whole life. <laughs> never, never have I seen anything like that. So I stand up. Thank you, Guillermo. It was an honor to meet you. And he goes, sit down, Gordo. And he goes, look, I have two daughters. Every Saturday morning, we would watch El Tigre. Oh, stop it. I just got goosebumps. I know who you are now. I just put it together. I know your art. I know how you see Mexico. Of course, I'm going to produce your movie. Oh. So I stand up, and I'm drenched, and I peed my pants, and I was so sweaty, no one could tell. He stands up. I hug him. Are liquids. And he pushed me away and he goes, Gordo, did you write the script? Because if you didn't write the script, you're not a real director. And I was like, no, no, I wrote the script. I wrote the script. So I ran out of the, the car. Um, I, I ran to my car and we had gone to a wedding. I opened my car trunk and there's my script. And at this wedding we went to, they gave you tequila bottles as presents. <laughs> tequila bottle broke. My script was drenched in tequila. And so it looked like like dried up toilet paper. <laughs> so I grabbed the script and I'm like just blowing on it, <laughs> trying to get it dry. And I and I hand it to him and he grabbed it with his big, you know, giant hands and he smelled it. And he goes, this is a good script. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. He became the producer of the movie. And thanks oh. to you, uh, we got co-financing by 20th Century Fox and distribution. And he became not only perhaps my harshest teacher, hmm. but a really good mentor. And now we're really good friends. So he changed my life. And it was all thanks to El Tigre. Yeah. Wow. Oh, man. I need a nap. Uh, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, so, oh, jeez. I don't even know where to go from there. I mean, I've been so excited to talk to you about this film because, you know, Jasmine and I fell in love with it. She, I, I started watching it when he was out, and I got five minutes into it, and I was like, I can't watch any more of this without him because he will love it, and he'll hate me if I watch it without uh, him. <laughs> uh, yeah, so so then she's yeah, like I said, she found it, sort of introduced it to me. We watched it together. We fell in love with it. And when she was going to this event where she met you and told me she was, I was like, "That's amazing! Like, what a crazy we we had just watched the film not mm-hmm. a couple That's months crazy. before then." Yeah, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> and you know, she wouldn't have been even been invited if it wasn't for her, you know, connections in the in the art world from doing live modeling anyway it's just crazy <laughs> the the intersections that have to happen in, in life much like your story so mm-hmm. um now that we are on the subject of book of life i i there's so many things i want to ask you about especially since you know you just mentioned we just had coco premiere um and i'm wondering 
Well, let me let me start with some of the harder stuff. Um, I happen sure. to be I happen to be friends with through connections in the LA theater scene. I happen to be friends with Richard Montoya and some of the Culture Clash guys. And Richard recently posted on his Facebook page this really long, um, sort of not explanation, but he he was responding to some people who were talking about him and Culture Clash, quote unquote, selling out. Uh, for their participation in Coco. And I'm wondering if you experienced similar things from your community when Book of Life was released. Um, I mean, I know that most of the most of the crew, as it were, the creative team behind it were were Mexican. But then you have, you know, uh, Channing Tatum, for instance, as one of the main, you know, actors in it. Granted, that actor like is supposed to come across as a bit of a, you know, gringo but uh you know did you what what were some of the um i guess criticisms of book of life when 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 it first came out well it was it was one of those really complicated things where the movie couldn't be for just one audience right it had to be for everyone it had to be for a worldwide film the movie in mexico will be dubbed in spanish so it's not like Channing Tatum's going to do the voice in Spanish. Right. So, right. I, so I knew in Latin America the movie would be uh, done in Spanish. So in the U.S., the fear was if you make a movie with an all-Hispanic cast, you're basically telling the audience this is just for Hispanic people. Mm. This is, again, 2012, mm. a different America <laughs> yeah. than the one we live in now. Uh, and, and by the way, I could have predicted uh, what was going to happen based on all the hate mail we would get. Oh, God. Uh, and so the idea was, how do we convince people who don't like Mexico and who don't like Mexican things to come to this movie that deals with very tough subject matter, right? Death, mm-hmm. both fighting. I mean, we could not have made it harder on ourselves. And what I learned from the casting process was... The, the actors in the movie not only have to be incredible actors, but they become your partners in trying to sell the movie. Hmm. And so by casting different types of actors, they will hopefully help you get a different kind of audience. Sure. And so Mexican people, we had a coverage. It was, what about everybody else? How do we get mm-hmm. the African-American community to come see the movie? How do we get the Hispanic East Coast community to see the movie. How do we get Middle America to see the movie? And so all that was a huge, huge part of mm. making the film. The studio is basically saying, okay, we're investing $50 million in this movie. We want at least at least $2 for every dollar we invest. Mm-hmm. And so as a director, all that gets thrown at you. And you have to make these choices where you go, what's good for the movie? But what will help the movie sell and what will help the biggest audience come to the movie? Mm. Because if you make an incredible movie and no one sees it, it's like like you didn't make it. Yeah. Right. So for me, it was, okay, if my my main character is Diego Luna, who's a Mexican voice actor, but at that point, this is pre-Rogue One Diego Luna. Mm. He had mostly art films. Uh, I had to compensate that someone who was a huge star and thankfully Channing Tatum hit it out of the park for us yeah. but that's how those casts happen you basically go for every indie guy you need a big giant superstar mm-hmm. uh, to compensate yeah. and you know the, the, the actresses will hopefully sell the movie in late night talk shows the actors will hopefully sell the movie in morning talk shows kids don't care this is all for their parents. Mm. <laughs> and so as a director, when you're told, yes, they should be really good actors, but here's all the other things that you have to do. It gets wow. really complicated. Same yeah. thing with the music, right? The music in our movie, when I first pitched it, all those songs that are in the movie were in the script. And I had no idea that you're not supposed to do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a huge no-no. Yeah. And then I was told, especially the songs I picked, Mm -hmm. these were all songs that meant stuff to me. So Creep was a big song when I was a teenager. 
you know, I have an Elvis song in, in there. I can't help falling in love. That's mm -hmm. that was my grandma's favorite song. Mm -hmm. uh, so I had songs, you know, there's a Rod Stewart song that my dad liked. I basically put all the songs that my family loved in the movie, and they they're English songs because the movie's in English. And I said if I put Spanish songs, no one's going to recognize them in the U.S. side, and when we translate them, they're going to sound horrible. Mm -hmm. It's like listening to Creep in Spanish. It will not be the same experience. <laughs> so uh, the first song, the, the big one, was Creep. And I remember Guillermo del Toro saying, uh, I got that song rejected for Hellboy. You are not going to get that song. No one's gotten that song. Whoa. What? And Radiohead feels really weird about that song, so it's going to be almost impossible. Uh, so I wrote, I wrote Radiohead a letter. Uh, we cut animatic reels to the song. I explained how much it meant to me. I explained something I saw in Mexico, which was I saw a little mariachi kid sing Creep in Mexico City. What? He was from a mariachi family, oh. and he was singing it on his own. And I said, look at this song from England. Look at how this kid has connected to it and made it his own. And that's what we want to do with the song in the movie. And Radiohead not only said, absolutely, you can use the song, but we're going to give it to you for... At that time, a very low uh, fee. Wow. wow. No one could believe it. So after that, any band I've, we approached, we, we, we could say Radiohead. Hey, yeah, Radiohead's on board. So <laughs> everybody was into it. And wow. then when they would, you know, charge us crazy amounts of money, we would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Radiohead charges <laughs> this money. Are you, are you saying you're better than Radiohead? Oh, my God. That's amazing. <laughs> So we guilted everybody. <laughs> and so the movie comes out, and in Mexico, they did not translate the songs. So if you were a Mexican movie audience, mm. you would see the movie in Spanish, and then all of a sudden, the main character starts singing Creep in English. Mm. So for middle-class Mexicans, they got it. But a lot of them were angry. Mm. They were like, this doesn't make sense. How? Why are you doing this? So we got a lot of crap for that on the Mexican side. Mm. On the U.S. side, we got a lot of crap for those aren't Mexican songs. Huh. Right? Yes. Yeah. You are not representing the culture. Now, I grew up in Mexico. I'm from the border. I can tell you that people in Mexico don't only eat Mexican food every day. They don't only <laughs> listen to Mexican music every day. <laughs> That's yes. like saying Americans only eat hamburgers every day and only listen to Western music every day. <laughs> I mean, I guess it depends where you live, but sure. Sure, right? I only so, eat hamburgers. Yeah. I said, you know, Mexicans, we, we are worldly. We live right next to the U.S. You know, we, of course, are citizens of the world. Mm -hmm. This movie, I'm not the government. I'm not the arts council. This is my version of Mexico. Hmm. As a kid who grew up in the border, this is what I saw. Mm -hmm. And so because I grew up on the border, I feel like I'm very comfortable disappointing both sides. And I'm okay with it. Hmm. Hmm. But on Mexico, we were deemed not Mexican enough. On the U.S. side, especially the hate mail we would get, we were deemed too Mexican. So you're never going to make both sides happy. It's just impossible. Hey everybody, welcome back. Hope you enjoyed the second of our three-part chat with Jorge Gutierrez. Uh, I, uh, again, have not had the opportunity to listen to this yet, but I've gone over the notes that uh, you put together, AJ, and it, what a, again, it's one for the books. Uh, love it. it. This is useful information, actionable information for anybody, really in any artistic discipline, I feel like. Any big takeaways that you want to highlight for our listeners? I think the biggest one from from this one, well, there, there's two for me. The one being when he started to get, he was pitching a ton and we started to get rejected. He started to ask people, how can I be better? How can I do better? And ordinarily, like that's not something we're going to ask at an audition or something like, okay, thank you so much. Okay, how can I be better? Obviously, that's not something that, you, you know, uh, an actor can necessarily uh, ask in the room, but I love the mindset of like wanting to get better and asking the other people around you, you know, for feedback, et cetera. 
it just goes right along with his sort of hardworking uh, mindset. So that was one. And then the other one was what he was talking about in terms of staying true to himself and true to his vision and true to the the type of art that he wanted to make because there's one quote that I highlighted in the notes where he said, if I make something I hate and people love it, other people love it, I'm screwed mm. because that's what people will want me to do for the rest of my life. And I was just like, like that is such a, an amazing argument for sticking to your guns and, and making the art that you, that you love. It's funny that of course, and we talked about this a little bit at the end of this part, of course he, he he's going to get accused of being a sellout um, when he when he gets the opportunity to make these you know big expensive feature films, but everything about him and his story is the opposite of being a sellout, <laughs> you know, uh, right down to that quote that I just mentioned. So those are my two my two big ones, uh, especially from this part. Awesome, yeah. For me, just reading the notes, uh, asking is so huge, and I love the way he asked. Okay, how can I be a better pitcher, essentially? Because people do generally want to help. And I think it would catch a lot of people off guard uh, in life generally if each of us listening to this, you know, and, and hosting this right now were to actually approach the people in our lives and say, like, look, I, 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 some, in some areas of life, I can I can understand that I'm not a, a level 10 person. What can I do to be a level 10 person? And whether that's personal relationships or professional relationships, I think that 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 would um really be a high leverage activity so to speak i love it just ask man just ask so often the answer is yes and if it's not so often that just means either you didn't ask the right way or it's not the right time or there's something better in store there's mm. a great saying uh i think i've shared this in the podcast before but uh when it comes to asking some will some won't so what someone's waiting and uh, what a great philosophy to to move through your creative career with. You I know? love it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about picks of the week here. Uh, I was just watching the trailer before we started recording for your pick of the week. Love sick. I think this was one of those nights where Jasmine and I just wanted to veg out. We were just sitting on the couch. We just wanted to like put something on. And uh, it was one of the feet. I think it's a, a Netflix original so it's one of the like the featured ones on on the uh, front page of the splash page so we uh we just uh, you know clicked on it and then read like the little byline <laughs> we thought it was hilarious so we started watching what's it about well i'm not giving anything away because this happens in like the first five minutes but basically the main character finds out that he has an std and he decides against the uh uh, the advice of his best friend, he decides that he's going to personally reach out to all of his prior sexual partners in order to basically let them know and, and potentially apologize if they ended up with it as well. Jeez. And so, he, so I know it sounds like a really terrible premise for, for something, but it's really, really well done and, and genuine and sincere and funny and, you know, it's just basically the hijinks of him going back and, and, and trying to find all these people. And um, so the, the show is also told out of chronological order. So it jumps back and forth. And um, you there is a through line. So you kind of are also trying to keep track of when things happened based on, you know, what what it says in the lower third, like, you know, three years prior, four years prior, 19 months before, you know, that kind of thing. So um, it's it's just it's really good. I would definitely uh, recommend it if if you're looking for a for a new comedy to check out. Hmm. Awesome. And that was a uh, 2014, I think it says on the uh, IMDb page there. So I actually recognize a handful of the actors from other British um, films and TV shows and things. It's a great cast. Great cast. Awesome, man. Awesome. Um, and I know we had some uh, some bad news this week, and that's probably what inspired your uh, your pick of the week. It did. Uh, and strangely enough, I have had this book on my nightstand uh, because I wanted to reread it for the past, uh, I don't know, two or three weeks. So um, mm. I kind of knew this was coming. But uh, Daniel Quinn, who is probably the one writer and thinker that has most influenced my worldview. Uh, actually, I wouldn't say probably. I would say definitely. Um, 
he passed away this weekend. It actually hit me kind of hard. Uh, I knew he was old and not doing well, but his book Ishmael really transformed my life. I remember reading it. I think a lot of us have a book like this. And for me, it was Ishmael. I remember reading it and just my whole world view falling apart before my eyes and a brand new one coming to sort of build in its place. And I have since read all his books and all his essays and watched all his YouTube interview videos many, many, many times uh, because I am just fascinated by how this man's brain works. And there's a handful of people that sort of uh, came online, so to speak, uh, around the same time that he started sort of sharing these ideas. Derek Jensen is another great one, uh, although I find him to be a, a tad depressing. Uh, Tom Hartman and Tom Shadiak are two others that have really influenced my thinking and worldview. But Daniel Quinn's book, Ishmael, um, really transformed my life. And if you haven't read it, uh, I highly urge you and encourage you to read it and to share it with everybody you know, because I think it is exactly the kind of cultural shift, or at least the, the suggestion of a cultural shift that we need to make it in on this planet for the next 50 years um we are mm. we are we are hitting a tipping point and i think it's starting to become obvious when it comes to climate change and uh the biosphere and of course how many people are competing for these various dwindling resources on the planet we're seeing more and more um clashes uh over over basic things like water and um people are still you know, talking about skin color and still carrying these uh, stories from childhood into their adult lives and harming other people as a result. So there's a lot in this book that I think can inform how we can move forward. And the only way to really uh, effectively implement it, I think, is to, uh, number one, live it, love it, learn it, live it. And number two, just share it with as many people as possible. Not everybody's going to be receptive to the message, but um, if we get enough people on board, thinking uh and some of the ways that daniel quinn urges us to think um i think we'll be pleasantly surprised at the outcome so ishmael is the book daniel quinn is the author rest in peace daniel thank you for your work transform my life and uh, you can visit ishmael.org for all his books and news and essays and things like that and there's a link to purchase the book on amazon on our website in the show notes so that is uh, Love Sick, a Netflix comedy, and Ishmael by Daniel Quinn, a very transformative book on culture. It's also just an entertaining read, so check it out. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a fiction, it's a novel technically, but it's couched within the uh, dialogue in the novel is, is all his ideas, or many of his ideas, because his other books explore other ideas. Hmm. Uh, check those out, links on our website. Anything else before we skedaddle here? Uh, I don't think so, man. Today's episode of Inside Acting was produced and co-hosted by yours truly, AJ Meyer, and of course, Trevor Algat. Team IAP also includes Jen Levin and Grace Gordon. You guys can visit us online at InsideActing.net to sign up for our weekly email dispatch and listen to all of our episodes. We're also on social media and pretty much everywhere else you get your podcasts. And we just want to give a shout out to vo to gogo We didn't mention them earlier in the episode. And you guys who have listened to us for a long time are quite familiar with vo to gogo at this point, we hope. But if you haven't checked them out, guys... Uh, Total disclaimer, I am one of their coaches, both online and in person in Hollywood every month, but it is a really fantastic zero to hero year long curriculum, not just for voiceover, but for acting and business and technology in general. Check it out at vo2gogo.com slash start. You can go to that website right now and get a free starter course that'll really set you up to win in voiceover and uh, I think give you a lot of the tools you need to get started right away. And if you want to go deeper with it, then you can consider signing up as a pro and attending the workouts and getting access to the 36 module video course. But it is a fantastic resource. And I think that um, as we move forward in this industry and things continue to transform and continually go online, I, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for people who are adept at voiceover. So if that tickles your fancy, check it out, vo2gogo.com slash start. Thank you for the fancy tickle, Trev. Uh, <laughs> you can still 
directly support the continued production of Inside Acting, the continued production and the continued uh, archiving of Inside Acting with either a one-time financial contribution or an ongoing monthly contribution. Uh, learn about all that at InsideActing.net. All right. That's it for episode 303, everybody. Thank you so very much for listening. Really grateful for you. Really grateful for this journey and excited for what's next. We'll see you next week in episode 304. Until then, just ask. Just ask.